A week ago Wednesday, I drove from Redwood City, California to Bakersfield, California to be with a friend. Uh, he's a friend that I first met um, in 1989, did a retreat in Palm Springs for a group called Campus Life Youth for Christ. Anybody know of that group? They work with high school students and there was a retreat for the board members for the Western States. And at the end of the conference, at the end of the weekend, he came to me and said, Dick, now you're, you're from the Assemblies of God, right? I said, right. He, he said, you're president of Bethany College, right? He said, you're here for Youth for Christ, right? He said, he said you didn't talk about any of that stuff. All you talked about was Jesus. I said, well, he's the main deal. Out of that contact, uh, a few years later, we ended up going to Washington, D.C. This friend, Warren Carter, was our link to that world where we've spent the last 18 years. You never know what kinds of connections, what kinds of glancing blows, if you will, or little uh, interactions you have that change the trajectory of your life. A few months ago, Warren was diagnosed with stage 4 liver, pancreatic, and lung cancer. Never a smoker, but he was diagnosed with that. And uh, he had a wicked sense of humor. And when I went to see him a couple of months back, his wife had died 20 months ago, and I had her service in Bakersfield. And Warren looked at me and said, Now, Dick, <clears throat> I know you did Lenore's service. But, uh, and it was good. It was good. But I, I think a couple of things probably could be improved, so I'm going to give you another run at it. <laughs> they put him in hospice Wednesday morning, this a week ago last Wednesday, I sat with him for three hours in the afternoon, most of that time he slept, and on Thursday evening at nine o'clock he went home to Jesus. People at the memorial service, which is upcoming, which I'll try to get it right this time, people will say, Warren's dead. That's it. It's over. But what appears to be is not accurate. That's not the end for Warren Carter. His body fell off. Scripture says he gets a new one. He's present with the Lord. I don't know how that works. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But Ruth's dad used to speak at memorial services. He was a pastor. He'd almost always say this, life is short, death is certain, but the grave is not the goal. What appears to be is not what is. Life is full of things that appear one way, but are really another way. They appear this way, but they're really something different than that. For example, here's, here's a statement. They have lots of money. Those guys are gazillionaires. They must be happy. <laughs> or, boy, is she famous. She must have lots of friends. Or, he's really going through a hard time. He must be coming unglued. <clears throat> Not necessarily. In John, the first chapter, there's this wonderful exchange between Jesus and the disciples of a relative of his. He has a second cousin, essentially, by the name of John the Baptist, who's six months older than he is. And John the Baptist sees Jesus by the River Jordan, and he says in John 1, you can read it, verse 35, he says, look, the Lamb of God. And the two guys that John has with him start following Jesus. And they have this little exchange, and I won't go into all that, but essentially they want to know where he's staying. He doesn't tell them. He just says, come, you'll see. Well, the next day, this is what happens. In verse 43 of John 1, it says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. 
Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Because Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Uh, he, was a, he was from a hill town. We would call it hillbilly. He was from this little podunk town, and that's why they say this. Can, I mean, that's just a little podunk bill. Can anything good come out of there? And isn't, you say he's the one Moses talked about, but they, I thought he like just made benches and tables and bed frames and stuff like that. How can it, see, it appeared that way, but what, what they really were seeing was this, found in Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15 tells you who Jesus really is. Who he really is, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him. I thought he just made like door jams and doors and chairs. No, all things were made by what appears to be is not quite accurate. It's only the schema, just the outline of what really is. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This isn't just the son of Mary and the adoptive son, if you will, of Joseph. It's not just his stepdad. <clears throat> this is the person, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Life is full of things that appear one way, but really are another way. On a Labor Day weekend some years ago, <clears throat> Ruth and I were driving to the East Coast. Ruth and I do a lot of driving. We've, we've always done a lot of driving. On our honeymoon, we drove. We spent one day over here and another day up at Yosemite and another day on Catalina. I mean, we just moved around and Ruth should have known that we'd spend the rest of our life driving when we did that. And 48 years later, we're still, we drove here from Colorado. And we used to take the kids from Urbana, Illinois, where we were doing a church plant near the university, to California every two years. And we had these four kids under the age of whatever, seven or eight, and we piled them in what they used to call a station wagon. Some of you remember what that is. And, uh, and we'd just head out at nine at night from Urbana, Illinois, and drive all night and most of the next day until we got to Shamrock, Texas. That's an hour east of Amarillo. Stop at the old Ranger Motel, and they'd swim in the pool, and we'd try to catch a few winks, and then we'd sleep till three in the morning, get them up while they were still sleepy, put them in the back of the car, and take off. This was before seat belts and all that, and they'd be fighting in the back, and you'd be doing this, and they'd be ducking, and you know, you, older guys go to the doctor now, and they got rotator cuff, and somebody said, football injury? No, just travel, road travel with the kids, you know, and 
I said that one time, an old guy came up to me and said, you know, I found that if you tap the brakes, it brings them back into play. You know? <laughs> You know, they didn't have seat belts or anything then. <clears throat> I don't know how I got off on that. It's just, it just seemed the truth that I wanted to share. <laughs> but Ruth and I had gone through Cincinnati to see some friends. And instead of taking the interstate out through West Virginia and back into Virginia and D.C., we decided to go down the south side of the, of the Ohio River. Now, Cincinnati sits on the southern edge of Ohio and across the river is Covington, Kentucky. It's actually where Cincinnati Airport is, is in Kentucky. The first time I ever landed in Covington, Kentucky and drove across to Cincinnati, I said, I've been here before. I, I've been here. When was I here? It was like deja vu. One of the, have you ever done that? You got these moments. You say, Man, I've been here. <clears throat> and it dawned on me all of a sudden that that was the opening sequence from WKRP Cincinnati, the old TVs. <laughs> Some of you old people remember that TV program. <clears throat> the upshot was that we ended up going down the Ohio River on the south side of the Kentucky side. And about an hour down, we stumbled onto this little village called Augusta, Kentucky. It was given as a land grant to Captain Philip Buckner in 1796 for his service in the Revolutionary War. It's most famous. It's a, it's a river town. It has a Methodist college that was founded in 1822. It was a center for the Underground Railroad during the Civil War and all of that, getting African Americans out of the South into freedom in the North and so forth. It's most famous, I think, because Rosemary Clooney, the, the, Clooney, the singer, lived there, and, uh, and uh, her nephew, George Clooney, I think some of you know George Clooney, his dad, I think, still lives in that town, but we drove in, and it was Labor Day weekend, and they called it Heritage Days, and it was, they had popcorn, and ice cream, and fried chicken, and hot dogs, and it was like Mayberry RFD, I mean, it was just like a little slice of Americana, just, it was all new, and we, and, and you know, just a, just a, a flip, back several pages like a hundred years and they had a little parade with their fire truck and a, they had a couple of cop cars there and and the high school band and it was and this mother was walking across the street with her boy which I judged I judged he was about 10 years old and they were walking across the street and I overhear their discussion and he's negotiating to go hang out with his friends. It's a beautiful September day. It's on the Ohio River. He's 10 years old for Pete's sake. He doesn't want to hang out with his mom. And so he's negotiating. And finally she says, okay, Johnny, but be back here at 2 o'clock. And as he walks away, she says, and be careful what you do with that stick. And in his hand he had a length of just a stick. Like a wooden, just... It, and she said, be careful what you do with that stick. And as he walked away, he turned and looked at her and said, it's not a stick. And kept walking. And I'm looking. It looked like a stick. <laughs> but if you're 10 years old on a warm September day and you're going to hang with your buddies, I mean, what could it possibly be if it wasn't a stick? Anybody? It could be a fishing pole. It could be a lightsaber. It could be a bazooka. It could be a horse. It could be a snake beater. It could be a, a it, 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 it could be a hunt. Any, any idiot can see it's not a stick. Are you with me here? The idea that life is full of things that appear one way but are really another is, I think, profound. I'm not 10 years old anymore, so I kind of I saw it as a stick. 
But in history, God takes what appears to be the ordinary and makes them extraordinary. He looks at Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, I'm too young. He says, good, okay, I'll take you. And he says, who, who among Jesse's family shall we make king? Well, why don't we take the kid who hangs out with the sheep who's the young one? We, Moses says, I'm a stutter. He says, good, why don't you go speak for him? That's the story of the Bible. What seems to be obstacle becomes a platform and God keeps working on us to help us recognize his dominion in our lives no matter what it is that shows up in our lives. He gives us eyes, baptisms of clear seeing to see things in different ways. Clearly that little boy, that young man of 10 years old saw that thing as something totally different than his mom saw it. Augustus Mobius in 1858, middle 1800s, was a mathematician, Dutch math mathematician, and he worked with shapes. He liked working on ideas with shapes and topography and stuff. And one day he was working with a piece of paper like this, and many of you moms have had birthday parties and where you're in school and you make daisy chains. You put it together like that and link them together and you string them around the room and you have balloons and you have a birthday party. And this is a two-sided piece of paper. You paint one side green, the other side blue. It's got two edges. But he was playing with it and he looked at it in a different way and he just took one edge and turned it over. Like that. And all of a sudden you have a, a form that only has one edge. And if you start painting this green, the whole thing will be painted green. It's got one continuous edge to it. We put these on sticks and hang them over babies' cribs and their mobiles and they blow in the breeze and kind of fascinate them. But what happened in that day was in the textile mills and in the factories, because this was the Industrial Revolution time from the late 1700s up to the mid-1800s, they had belts on machines and they wore out because they, they did them like the daisy chain, like this. And when he did this... He brought a whole new face to the Industrial Revolution because he had a belt or a pulley that wore evenly on all sides. And if you look in your vacuum cleaner today, 150 years later, 160 years later, you'll find one of these. If you look in your washing machine today, you'll find one of these because Augustus Mobius saw it in a different way. It's not just a two-sided piece of paper that you make into a daisy chain. It is, in fact, an implement of industry, potentially. Here is the God who comes along and he challenges us. I love the story of Moses. You know Moses. Moses had this incredible childhood. They were supposed to kill him when he was born because the word in Egypt was kill all those Hebrew bo baby boys. And his mom, she's tough. She said, we're not doing that. And so they hid him in the reeds in this little basket and his sister watched. And the Pharaoh's daughter came along and found him. And you can read this in Exodus in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And um, he grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He was being trained to lead the whole nation. He knew math. He knew astronomy. He knew all the stuff the Egyptians knew. And one day he got mad over what he considered an injustice. Killed a guy. Had to run for his life. He was 40 years old when that happened. And so for 40 years he's out in the desert not leading people but leading sheep. And one day he gets up and goes out to herd the sheep and there's a bush that's on fire. How many remember that story? Remember that story? The bush is on fire. Now I understand in some arid climates that bushes can spontaneously combust. Gets that hot. But this isn't one of those. This is a bush that is not consumed. This is a bush that is burning and it doesn't turn into ash. More than that, this is a talking bush. 
The voice from the bush says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then the voice says, I want you to go down and set my people free. I've heard the cries of their suffering down in Egypt. Well, he's wanted for murder. He doesn't want his, his pictures in every post office in Egypt. He doesn't want to go back there. And so he makes excuses. He says, I'm a stutterer. I can't see. He said, I'll give you Aaron to be your mouthpiece and all this kind of stuff. And you get to chapter 4 of Exodus and listen to what it says. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a stick, a sheep stick, a staff for guiding and getting the sheep. And Moses and the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, turned back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord, <coughs> so, they, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What's that in your hand, Moses? It's a stick. No, no. Throw it down. It's not even a snake. It's an expression of my power. That's to show you that where you go, I'll go with you. My presence will be there. My power is greater. And what you think you have is way more than you think you have. Jesus kept doing this with the disciples all the time. He kept revealing himself in bits and pieces. And when he said, I'm going to the cross, they say, no, 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 no. We don't want you to go there because you'll die. He says, no, no. Uh, on the third day, I'll rise again. They say, you're right. But you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. On the and what was designed as a killing instrument to kill people turned out to be the death knell for Satan himself. Because what we think the cross is, some people say, well, that's an instrument of judgment and wrath when in fact it turned out to be one of the, the kindest act in all of human history, symbolized by this rough, hewn pieces of lumber put together. When they think they're going to kill me, what in fact is going to happen is that it spells the death knell for Satan himself. What looks like death will be life. What looks like an instrument of death is really the key to the kingdom of God. The things in your life that look like problems, whatever the Spirit is speaking to you about, the ordinary thing, the bland thing, the thing you see as a problem, the thing you see as an impediment, that stubborn thing, that painful thing, I think Jesus wants to look at that thing again. When I was 16 years old, I sensed what I felt was sort of a, a call to ministry. The only models for ministry we had in the 1950s in my church were you could be a pastor, an evangelist, or a missionary. And all three of those had to talk. And I liked the missionary one more because you're in the jungles and cool, and pastor, that, that was boring. And the evangelist, I couldn't do that thing. And I, you know. My problem was that at age five, when I was in a British boarding school in South India, where my parents were missionaries, uh, they skipped me a grade, and my mom said, when that happened, you started stuttering. And from age five to age 29, approximately, I was a severe stutterer, depending on the time and place. I was a stutterer. And so when it came time 
to go to college for training. I'm thinking I can't be like a pastor, speaker kind of person, I, storyteller, and I couldn't do that. So I'll be a doctor. Because doctors don't have to talk, they just cut on people. So, <laughs> so I went to Cal Berkeley at age 17 in 1959 and promptly got five units of D in chemistry 1A. And wisely, I chose not to inflict myself on the medical community or on you. Nobody here wants a guy who got a C in surgery cutting on him. They don't, they don't want that. So. But it was God's way of saying, you really need to look again at this thing. And I'm like Moses saying, but I'm a, a stutterer. And he says, what do you have in your hand there, Moses? Throw it down. And the Lord took that thing that was an impediment and turned it around in a way that shapes how I speak. I speak, the style of my speaking comes out of my stuttering. I will speak rapidly for a few moments and stop. Then I'll say a few more things and stop. Say a couple of words and stop. When I was in graduate school and took public speaking, I got high marks in the effective use of the dramatic pause. <laughs> I was just trying to keep from stuttering for Pete's sake. What do you have in your hand, Moses? Stick? It's not a stick. Throw it down and let me show you your power. In closing, this will be a little long closing, won't be like two minutes, but in closing, I'd like to tell you about my mom. You say, oh, brother, Here comes this old bald guy, tell us about his mother, this is going to be good. Yeah, it is, it's going to be good, you're going to like this. My mother, Gwendolyn Vance Boyd, was born in California on July the 11th, 1910. <clears throat> when she was born, Robert Taft was president. The average annual wage in the United States was $985 a year. There were 1,000 miles of paved road in the United States in 1910. And that year, Henry Ford built 10,000 cars, all black. Six weeks after my mom was born here, another girl was born in Albania, and she spent most of her life in India. We know her as Mother Teresa. 1910 was the year Mark Twain died. When my mom was four in 1914, the war to end all wars started in Europe, First World War. Eight million people died in those four years during the war, but in 1917, a flu epidemic ran its gamut, a pandemic ran through the world, and 25 million people died of flu in those two years. 1929, when my mom was 19, the stock market crashed. She went off to a little college in Southern California called Southern California Bible Institute. It is now, some of you know it as Vanguard University in Costa Mesa, California. There she met a six-foot-three handsome guy by the name of Oliver Foth. Really good-looking dude. I, it, it, has, it has jumped a generation. I don't know what happened, but our kids got it. But this, I got the ugly part. And so, but they fell in love and married and started pastoring. My sister Luann came along, and then in 1942 on St. Patrick's Day, I was born. In 1944, my parents went to a conference for young people and a single lady missionary by the name of Inez Chris from South India, from North India, stood up and said, I want a man. And I was going, whoa. <laughs> she said, I want a man for India. And out of that, my parents signed up, if you will, enlisted 
to become missionaries right after the Second World War because many missionaries had come home prior to the war and then went back after. So we were, as I'm told, on the second ship out of New York Harbor for Europe at the end of the Second World War. We spent four years in India, came back. I was brought up in Oakland, California, graduated high school there. And during my junior high years, my parents started having difficulty that I could observe. And in high school, it got worse. And then I transferred from UC Berkeley to Bethany College, and there I met Ruth Blakely from Modesto, California. Her dad was a pastor, my dad was a pastor, and six weeks after graduating from Bethany in 63, we married on a blazing hot central California day, 105 degrees, and three weeks later loaded up the 1960 Corvair that I got in the deal. She had this little Corvair car. How many remember what a Corvair was? Some of you old people, older, more mature. You get. <laughs> wasn't a very safe car, but it looked very cool. And uh, we headed to Wheaton Graduate School. We had all of our stuff. looked like grapes of wrath heading east. And uh, two months after I was in graduate school, got a letter from my father saying that he was leaving my mother. Now, that's not supposed to happen. What's that about? He's a pastor, for Pete's sake. What's with that? How many of you have, are old enough to understand that life is often what happens when you expected something else? That's a lot of things in life don't make sense. And they're tragic in some instances and painful at the least in others. Nobody's sitting here in this sanctuary who doesn't have scars from something at some level. So we get that. We're humans, okay? But I struggled with it. I grappled with it. I thought maybe it's in, maybe it's hereditary or something. Well, 48 years this week, so far so good, you know. <laughs> but, the, but the fact is that my mom had a choice to make about that moment of rejection, of that moment of displacement. She was 54 years old, never worked outside the home. And she had a choice to make. Whether she was going to curl up in the fetal position, suck her thumb, and just say, why don't we just eat some worms over here in the corner, or whether I will stay engaged with life and press forward. What appears to be a stick could be something else. And so she went out and found a job. She didn't know how to type, and so she had to teach herself to type like on a typewriter. For those of you who are younger, that's a thing we used to have where you would type with ribbons and correction fluid, stuff like that. And, and she worked from age 54 to age 70 as an admitting clerk in a hospital in Pasadena, California. And when she hit 71, they said you had to retire, whereupon she retired and went across the street to a very fancy assisted care center and worked for another nine years till she was 80. My mom was a consummate pianist and organist and her mom had taken in washing so she could have piano lessons when she was a young girl. And she would go to nursing homes in, in her 80s and 90s and play for what she called those old people. <clears throat> she, uh, she was strong. She could get her way. You have to be strong sometimes, don't you? And... Uh, I'm, I'm a president of Bethany College down here, and the phone rings one day. My mom's 80 at this time, and it's a Pacific Bell telephone operator saying, Mr. Foth, do you have trouble with the phones at your house? I said, I don't think so. This is pre-cell phone days. I said, I don't think so. She said, well, is there humming or buzzing on the phone and, like last evening? I said, I don't, I don't think so. Well, I said, maybe there was. She said, well, we'll send a crew out to check it out. 
I said, did my wife call you? That's very kind of you to call. She said, no, your mother. <laughs> Gwen Foth, 714 Area Code, Southern California. I said, my mom called you? She said, yeah. And, and she thought something might be wrong, wanted us to check on you. Moms do that. And she said, and by the way, she wanted us to tell you that she has a doctor's appointment today, but not to worry, it's nothing serious. <laughs> See, only an 80-year-old mother could get Pacific Bell to tell you that kind of stuff, you know. So that's just, that's just how it is. <clears throat> she drove in Southern California until she was 92 years old. You may have seen her. <laughs> she wasn't one of those little old ladies from Altadena in tennis shoes that putt-putts down the road and slows down. No, no, no. She's like some of you golfers. She drove her age. So she just put the pedal to the metal and she would fly. And if you rode with her, your prayer life was increased. It was just, you're saying, oh God, don't let us die. I mean, you just, she backed up. She was funny. I mean, she, she saw life in a different way. She backed out of her driveway one day and a guy T-boned her, whack, hit her in the side, about destroyed the car and she was shaken up but not hurt seriously. And the police came and said, are you okay, ma'am? She said, I think so. I'm a bit shaken, but I'm okay. And she was old school. She always dressed up to go to the grocery store. She'd have a nice dress and high heels and stockings and, you know, she was just a, and uh, as she was talking to the officer, she said, oh, but look, we killed that poor little dog in this collision. He said, ma'am, that little dog, we killed that little dog in this collision. The officer looked down and said, ma'am, that's, that's not a dog. That's your wig. <laughs> See, what's funny about that is she had to tell it on herself. Nobody was with her. She told that story on herself. Some of you are looking at me, uh, you're desecrating your mother's memory. No, no, no. She loved that. The point is that she engaged life. What, what others might see as a stick, she saw as something more. She wasn't going to stop on the basis of that. When she got to 95, she had a little stroke, we think, had a little dementia going. And I called her on her birthday. I'm in Washington, D.C. She's in Orange County, California. I called her on her birthday and said, Mom, this is Dick. She turned to somebody and said, my brother's on the phone. Now, dementia's not funny, but she's funny. Now, she had four brothers, none of whom are named Dick. I said, this is your son, Dick. She said, oh, Dick, honey, you live way over there, don't you? I said, yeah, I live in Washington, D.C. She said, you know, I've got a son in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, Mom, that's me. She said, there must be two of you. <laughs> when she was 93, my sister called and said, what do we give Mom for her birthday? I mean, what do you give somebody who's overnight? They, like, give it back. They forget where they put it. They, I mean, all kinds of stuff. If you're over 90, you get this. And uh, so I said, take her to a really nice restaurant for a meal. And so she and my two cousins took her to Dana Point, California, to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel for high tea. She walked in, and somebody was playing a grand piano over there in the corner, and they got ordered high tea. And one of my cousins sauntered over and said, do you ever let anybody else play the piano? The guy said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, this young lady here has her 93rd birthday. She's a great pianist. He said, well, when I take a break, why don't we do that? So a few minutes later, he took a break, and he said, you're on. And my two cousins took mom over and put her down on the piano bench, and she started to play some show tunes that morphed into hymns, <coughs> into hymns. And then she started playing an old camp meeting song. She threw her head back, closed her eyes, and started to sing, There's going to be a meeting in the air, in the sweet, sweet by and by. And oh, I want to see you over there, way beyond the sky. 
and people start gathering around the piano. And my cousin and sister are standing over there bawling. See, it could have been a stick, but in fact it became an opportunity. It could have been a devastating cross-like thing to bear. It's not that it wasn't painful to the end, but it didn't have to shape my life in a way that made me something less. My mom um, always loved playing the piano and at her 90th birthday party, somebody said, Gwen, why don't you play some songs for us? And she went over and sat down and played some show tunes and hymns and stuff and then played what I considered to be sort of her signature song because the thing she had determined when dad walked away, the thing she had determined that would she, was that she would still be tied in with Jesus, whatever that Samoan word was, that stick tight, that word, she would do that and she'd love her kids and her grandchildren. Those were the places she'd go, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the closest one to you as yourself. That's what she determined. And so the focus on Jesus was huge for her in the midst of everything else. And if she were here today, I'd have you, I'd have her play that song. Well, why don't I just have her play it? This is Gwen Foth at her 90th birthday. About a year ago, August 8, 2010, at the age of 100 years and four weeks old, mom went home to Jesus. I think she got to 100 and said, I'm out. Let's hand this sucker off to those younger people. I'm gone. But to the end of her days, she was engaged with him. And what some people saw as a stick she saw as something else. Oh, she saw it as a stick for a while, trust me. But somewhere along the line, Jesus helped her pass that. And she saw his power at work. I don't know what it is in your life that may be stick-shaped to you. But I just came to tell you that Jesus says it's more. Johnny, you be back here at 2 o'clock. And be careful what you do with that stick. It's not a stick. You can say that again. <laughs>